mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Today we're talking about just one chapter. Chapter 46. It starts with a letter from Jane to Lizzie. Well, actually two letters, but Lizzie gets them both at the same time because the first one was delayed. And there is big, damning news in these letters. Poor Lydia, as Jane refers to her, has run away from Colonel and Mrs. Forster to Scotland to get married with Wickham. In the first letter, Jane is worried about Lydia, but not upset. It's a small scandal, but Lydia will be married soon. It sucks that the marriage will be to Wickham, but Jane, ever the optimist, wants to look on the bright side. She says that Wickham can't actually be that bad because he clearly isn't marrying Lydia for her money. But then Lizzie opens the second letter. Jane tells Lizzie that this time it is bad news. It seems that Lydia and Wickham were not heading for Scotland, the land of quick marriages. They are hidden away, unmarried, in London, and nobody knows exactly where. It is unclear how much Lydia is complicit in this part of the scheme. When they ran away, Lydia left a note for Mrs. Forster and sent a letter to Kitty, saying that they were heading to Gretna Green to get married. But Denny tells Colonel Forster that Wickham never intended to marry Lydia or even go to Scotland. When I read this and imagine that Lydia thinks she's going off to be married, but is instead smuggled off to London, I think this 15-year-old child has been kidnapped. She, let me say it again, at 15 years old, has been lured by a man in his late 20s under false pretenses in a manner that will involve her sexual exploitation. And yet, that is not how Austin writes about this. Here is Tara Menon on Lydia's representation in the novel. So, yeah, while I think many people today, and I have students, you know, I taught this novel last month, who say that Lydia is their favorite character. But I think it's very clear that Austin thought Lydia deserved your moral condemnation. That Lydia has done something wrong, she's done something risky, and she's done something wrong not only because of her individual behavior, but because of the potential consequences for the rest of her family. That she's done something profoundly 
not social, because it could have this very negative effect on the rest of her sisters. And Austin means to condemn that action. Lizzie is devastated at this news that Lydia has run off and isn't getting married. And Lizzie can't help but despair at the effect Lydia's poor judgment will have on her whole family's reputation. The crux of the second letter is this. Jane asks Lizzie to come home. And she asks her aunt and uncle to come too. She needs all of them. This is a family emergency. As Lizzie runs out the door to go find her uncle, Darcy appears. She is in a panic and tells him she can't talk. She's got to go find her aunt and uncle. Darcy, worried about her, sends a servant instead. Lizzie instantly bursts into sobs and Darcy watches, deeply concerned and very awkward. She tells him everything, that Lydia is, quote, lost forever. Darcy has questions. Where are Lydia and Wickham? What's being done? But then he goes silent. Lizzie knows what this silence means. She sees it so clearly. Lydia is lost, and now so is Darcy. He always thought that her family was trash, and now it's confirmed for him. And knowing she has lost him confirms it for her. She loves him. Finally, Darcy gives, I think, a pretty good speech. Kind and empathetic, but not self-serving. And then he leaves. Lizzie knows they will never see each other again, at least not like it was before. This is the moment in the book where Lydia's irresponsibility gets put into conversation with Wickham's villainy. Whose fault is this mess? As Tara said, the text does not excuse Lydia. Her thoughtless actions have potentially ruined the lives of her four sisters, her parents, and maybe even the gardeners. But as Lizzie is wrapping her mind around all of it, she does spare some concern and pity for Lydia. Here is Aisha Ramachandran on why that pity is warranted. I, mean, I just I think we should remember that Lydia is 15 years old and in that sense equivalent to somebody who'd be kind of early on in high school, right? Hormonal, boy crazy, trying really hard to assert herself and uh, wanting desperately to be grown up already because she has four older sisters who are grown up and get to go to parties and like do all this stuff. So, so it's an important way in which I think she's very deeply legible as the kid who really, really, really wants to be older, <laughs> and tries to mimic what she sees in the women who are older around her, right? And that's that's where I think Lydia is a really important kind of dark mirror for all the other women in the novel. And that, I think, is really why her, her youth is so important, the fact that it's easy to take advantage of her. I mean, we've seen young women like this who try to pretend like they're a lot older and can quite easily trick, especially the men around them, into believing that they know what they're doing, but they're just acting. When Mr. and Mrs. Gardner come back, everything is arranged quickly. They're in the carriage, off for Longbourn within the hour, and Lizzie is thrilled to be going home, even though she doubts that there is anything to be done. But even as their bodies head back to Longbourn, Lizzie's thoughts are at least in part staying with Darcy at Pemberley. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. 
Hi, lovely Lauren. Hi. I mean, honestly, personally, I think that the thing that all of our listeners need to know out of the gate is that your Ellen and my Sam, as we are recording this, are turning 15. (laughs) Today and tomorrow. Yes. And listening to everything that you just said to us, in addition to having this chapter in my head, I feel like just shoving Sam right back in my womb and locking the door forever. (laughs) (laughs) Sewing up the cervix and saying, sorry, kiddo. Shutting it down. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. This is why Rapunzel had to grow her hair, I suppose. (laughs) (sighs) All right. So historically, the thing we all need to know about this chapter is why there's so much discussion of this place called Gretna Green and what it means that they go to Scotland. So in 1753, Lord Harwick put forth the Clandestine Marriage Act that really tightened and transformed how a person, how two people actually, could get married in England. So the Clandestine Marriage Act required that parents approve of the marriage, sign off on the marriage if a person was under 21, as we know well, poor Lydia is, and also that it take place in a church. There were civil ceremonies that were permitted before this act. But not only did it need to be something that was sanctified in a church, this marriage, but the process of sanctifying a marriage in the Church of England required the marriage bans, which meant the announcement of the intended marriage over a series of three Sundays before the marriage ceremony could take place. And so those weeks allowed anyone who had objection to the marriage to come forth and say that this marriage was not something that should happen. On the other hand, since Scotland was not governed by any of this at all, things were still fast and wild up there. And in the town of Gretna Green, which was a mere 0.8 miles from the English border and was right along the road that brought you straight up from London, that's where people would go run off to Vegas. So there was no waiting period. You needed no parental consent. You didn't have to do it in a church. The ceremony that you would have instead in Gretna Green is actually something called hand fasting, which is an ancient Celtic ritual in which hands are tied together to symbolize the binding of two lives. So, you know, sort of like atheist pseudo hippie me thinks that Gretna Green sounds like a really great place to get married. No church, this lovely tradition. You're not the property of your parents. And yet, when we keep in mind what this means for a 15-year-old, it does get a little bit sinister. And he's not even planning on taking her there. It's sinister if he is planning on taking her there, but even worse, he's not. And reading it this time was the first time that I I really was like, oh, my God, Lydia thinks she's running off to get married. Wickham tells Denny, oh, I'm not going to marry her. But every letter that Lydia has written to Kitty is like, we're running off to Gretna Green, and she has no reason to lie to Kitty, who's keeping her secrets anyway. This sinister plan isn't even the full scope of what's awful. Yes, but I have a different way of feeling about this, which is, yes, Wickham is that guy. And that guy fucking sucks. I hate Wickham for being that guy. But to me, the only thing that could be worse than Lydia not marrying Wickham is Lydia marrying Wickham. The notion that her entire family 
because of social pressures or their own totally, to me, twisted morality, needs to save her by tethering her to someone who would kidnap her and lie to her at the age of 15. Like, the notion that she should be stuck with this guy for the rest of her life because of this, that, to me, is the real crime here. I mean, I just think that crime is one of, like, laws and social mores, not of the family. The family is essentially saying, you might be ruined by being with him, but you'll be more ruined by not being with him. I would say that it feels like a failure of Austin's imagination to me to not be able to find a way out of this for Lydia other than her being tethered to Wickham for life at the age of 15. And for everyone in the book agreeing unanimously that that's the best and only path forward for her. So I just think Lydia is screwed the second that she is like, born a woman in this time. And whether or not she's like, you know, I guess I think like it's a marginal difference between unhappy with Wickham and unhappy without Wickham. And I do at least believe that it's the right thing to do that she marry Wickham because I do think she's like completely fucked either way that like she's not bringing down her sisters with her. And I just think, right, like you're not ruined if you live separately from your husband. Like if you live in Longbourn as a married woman who never sees him, you are less fucked (laughs) than if you're a ruined woman in this time. I just think ruined women were the most vulnerable. Isn't this to some extent what your book is about? This is all, all I got, which is like following a young woman, Camilla, who is pregnant and homeless and then a young mother and homeless. And she's essentially more homeless than a man because you can't crash on a couch with a baby. Like, without being married, without the protection of a man, and as a single woman in a system, you're just more vulnerable and more screwed. And, like, that's what ruined looks now is, like, homeless and a mom. But ruined women are always just, like, the most vulnerable things in the world. Yes, and I think... It's also about who gets to escape ruination because of their privilege, right? So so in my book, Camilla can't escape it because she's born into poverty. And Lydia isn't born into poverty, but she's not born into the situation that Georgiana is born into. And the only difference between Georgiana and Lydia, who both ran off with Wickham, both as teenagers, is that... Darcy could essentially hire someone to scrub the Google traces of it, right? That they could rescue her and keep it quiet in a way that meant that Georgiana can go off and live her life. Whereas with Lydia, she's too poor and she's too public and she doesn't have anyone to do damage control for her. It's too late. Which is why she has to get married. Well, That is the novel that Austin is writing. But I do think that there are other novels that other people could have written at the time that would consider a different path for her. I also think that Austin could be using this material to talk about that sort of inequality, to talk about what a prison it is to be a woman in this English society. But instead, the onus is on Lydia and Lydia's morality. And that, I think, is the thing that infuriates me the most. How much Austin lays it out there and how much she writes every one of these characters to just go along with it. So that I totally agree with. 
there are these like little lines that I find interesting where she blames Wickham. She's like, Lydia did not run off with him thinking she wasn't getting married. Lydia got duped. And so like, this is a bad man. And like, Lizzie at least names that. The other thing that Lizzie names is her parents, right? She says the mischief of neglect and mistaken indulgence towards such a girl. And so Lizzie's naming it, naming the ways that Lydia is a victim. But I agree with you. Austin and Lizzie are not paying in my opinion, enough attention to it. Enough attention to the fact that this is freaking a kidnapping. You should be able to go to whatever the British equivalent of the FBI is and say, our daughter was lured under a false pretense by a man nearly twice her age. And yet we have a culture of people who marry in their teens to much older men. And so there is something that is grotesquely normative about this. And also because Lydia has been taught since birth that it is the only thing that matters, marriage. It is the only thing that will save her. It is where all of her self-worth, all of her security, her entire future is tied up. Plus, there's also just she's 15 and she's kind of hot for someone and sex feels good. And this is the thing that she can hold over her sisters. And she's having a totally adolescent response to this in a way that seems really developmentally appropriate. And I don't know. I feel like she's choosing something that she really wants. So do I want Sam to run off to London with some dude in his late 20s and totally vanish. So I have no idea where they are. I mean, like, no, of course not. But within the context of a world in which teenagers get married and that they're taught that that's the only way that they can have a future, I also want to speak to Lydia's agency there a little bit. But it's not informed agency. It's not informed consent. She thinks she is consenting to getting married. And whether or not she would run off with Wickham anyway, who knows? But it's not agency. He has taken her agency away from her by lying to her. I would like Lydia to be given the opportunity to say yes to this on accurate terms. I mean, I do think it's really interesting where Austin takes us in the blame game here, right? Yeah. Like showing us how Darcy feels massively guilty about not exposing Wickham when he could have. And Jane somehow doesn't know to feel massively guilty about not exposing Wickham because she wants to just wish the best about it. And Lizzie obviously feels her own culpability in this. Like the other set of mores in play here are about English silence, right? About the desire to not speak out of school, to not stir up drama where perhaps none should exist and to allow people to represent themselves which in this situation has clearly brought about the downfall of this 15-year-old girl. Yeah, and to some extent, I think Darcy, right, Darcy in his letter blames how we all want to give the benefit of the doubt to charming, handsome boys. That this line that Lizzie uses about her own parents in terms of Lydia, right, the mischief or neglect and mistaken indulgence towards such a girl, I think can also be applied to Wickham. That, like, this guy was able to turn out bad because he was spoiled in a certain way. And I'm just always one who, like, I always, always, always want to blame society. That it's like, who determines these norms? We should be deconstructing these norms. And intellectually, I am someone who's, like, pro-prison abolition and is like, 
this is society's fault. Everyone is a victim. And then I am emotionally confronted with someone like Wickham. And I'm like, no, you are a rapist and a kidnapper. What you did is rape by deception. And as of 1995 in England, that is illegal. And it should have always been illegal. (laughs) And like, you need to go to a bad man timeout corner that is a lot like jail. Or at the very least, we should be able to tell our literal sisters. (laughs) Right. When there's a bad man around, right? Instead of feeling like, oh, no, we won't traffic in such indecencies. And I think that, you know, it all comes back to the question of shame, right? No one wanted to expose Georgiana for being entrapped because that's a question of shame. Right. Shame in that situation puts the onus on Georgiana in the same way that this whole family is putting the onus on Lydia, that these girls are supposed to know better, that their virtue that their morality should be so Teflon as to sort of fend off the advances of someone charming and attractive. It's fun to kiss someone who's charming and attractive, and maybe it, A, shouldn't ruin the rest of your life or your siblings' lives, or be so, so shameful that you never breathe a word of it so that these people can continue rampaging in the way that boys will be boys if they are never called to task for it. I mean, and Lauren, right, we're just dealing with this now. Like, I feel like in 30 years, we are very much going to look back at this moment as like still in the Me Too moment. I know it feels like old news now. But like just now, women were not ashamed and were talking to their quote unquote sisters and being like, no, 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 no. Louis C.K. did this to me. Oh, shoot. Right. Literally me too. Like Georgiana and Lydia are having a Me Too moment, but because of the shame and customs of the time, like they're not allowed to talk to each other. And instead they are both punished and shamed. And like that is still happening now, right? Like that is still very much literally happening now. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, Lauren, you've talked about the blame game, and I think we've both complained about how we both really think that mostly it's society and norms and laws. But the text is blaming Lydia. (laughs) Tara Menon talks about this, right? Like, Lizzie blames Lydia. The text blames Lydia. All of these other things get named briefly. But Jane, the best thing anybody can say about Lydia in this chapter is 
Lydia can't possibly be that stupid, right? Like, that she would run off with Wickham without a promise to go to Gretna Green. The person who I think blames Wickham is Darcy. We don't totally see it yet, but I think because Darcy's sister, who he loves, got duped by Wickham, he doesn't say a single word bad against Lydia. He blames himself, and then he hops into action. And I think Darcy might be, like, the most clear-eyed about what's going on here out of everyone. He's like, oh, my God, silence has ruined this. This, like, British stiff upper lip silence has ruined another girl, has ruined the woman that I love. Holy crap, I better hop into action. And I do think that that is really interesting and shows a lot of great things about Darcy, but also that is the level of empathy that you have to have for someone in the society in order to be progressive on an issue. It literally happened to him and his sister. I do think that he blames himself. And I do think that he, of course, blames Wickham. And I also think it's really interesting that with all of this talk that happens, it's a book which is so much about talking, right? It is Darcy who doesn't say a word. He just goes and takes care of business. And even after he takes care of business, we'll find out he still doesn't say a word. And this is part of the trope of Darcy that I think is is lasting for us. And while I've shit-talked Darcy a lot, <laughs> you know, and I might also want Darcy to sit around and, like, have a glass of wine and post-game the whole thing with me and be super analytical, I also love that Darcy's like, okay, enough talk. We got to change this situation. We got to have some action here. And that man of action is a really powerful thing. He's the silent cowboy in all these ways. But in this case, without the toxic masculinity that tends to cling to that trope, he's actually getting something done for women who he deeply cares about. Knight in shining armor. So thinking about Darcy and how one falls in love with Darcy and thinking about Wickham and how one, let's just say, falls for Wickham. I mean, is is a real tension for Lizzie. I mean, throughout the book, obviously, right? This is the question of prejudice, who you're into at first sight and who who's the long, slow journey of the heart. And the passage that we wanted to unpack in this episode is both, I think, at the heart of Lizzie and her understanding of prejudice and first impressions and love. And it is also one of the most like obtuse, convoluted, <laughs> tangled sentences in the entire book, if not by far the most. So I want to read it aloud and we want to try to disentangle it and see what she's talking about here. So Austin writes, If gratitude and esteem are good foundations of affection, Elizabeth's change of sentiment will neither be improbable nor faulty. But if otherwise, if the regard springing from such sources is unreasonable or unnatural in comparison with what is so often described as arising on a first interview with this object, and even before two words have been exchanged— Nothing can be said in her defense except that she had given somewhat of a trial to the latter method in her partiality for Wickham, and that its ill success might perhaps authorize her to seek the other, less interesting mode of attachment. 
Ooh, less interesting. I just understood that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> so the way I read it, what Austin is saying here is she tried the thrill of falling for someone on first impression, of getting really excited about how charming and handsome Wickham was at first and putting her heart there. But in fact, it is the far less momentous, slow development of actual love, which is what she's experienced with Darcy. You know, we put so much weight upon those first interviews, upon what is felt before two words have been exchanged that thrill of meeting someone. But gratitude and esteem are good foundations of affection. And so Lizzie, considering how she has felt one way for Wickham and has now found herself in love with Darcy and wondering how on earth that could happen when she met this charming man who exchanged not just pleasantries, but assured confidences with her, with whom she had all this rapport and attention, who has now, as you put it, Vanessa, kidnapped her littlest sister. And here she is pining for, yearning for, wishing anything to be the mistress of Pemberley because of her ardent love for Darcy. It can be perplexing when we don't feel the romantic momentum that one associates with what falling for someone feels like when it is actually based in the less interesting stuff. He's about to get super interesting, though. He's about to, like, go on the road and bribe people and make stuff happen. (laughs) He's about to be a cowboy. This is the warning, right? This is the don't fall for the Wickhams, y'all. Anyone can smolder for two days, but the less interesting ones, like, are the ones who you can trust. And maybe the smolder guys will end up being the trusting guys, but don't just count on the two days, right? And maybe the trusting guys will end up as the smolder guys, yeah. as Darcy is now. But I do think, I mean, in so many ways, this is the heart of what she's teaching us yeah. in this novel, right? This is the problem with the pride and the prejudice, especially the prejudice. This is the flip side of first impressions. But she's someone who throughout the 40-something chapters we've already read has such a clarity of thought and voice that she, you know, she writes to the level of aphorism, as we all know. It is so fascinating to me that this is perhaps one of the most important things she says in the book, and it is practically unintelligible. Yeah, It is such a convoluted mess. And I can't help but wonder what she may have been trying to work out on her own here that she hadn't quite gotten enough removed from to be able to say it with some clarity. Yeah, it's strange. It's almost like the sentence is its own style, right? Like, it's almost legalistic with all of these caveats, you know, in so which one party esteems the other party and sentiments are its object. I wonder if she's still trying to argue something to herself. Yeah, trying to argue something to herself or to her nieces in the next generation, right? Like, I don't know. She was acutely worried about the fates of women, right? The fates of everyone. And so this might be the thing that feels highest stakes to her in the novel of like, 
be careful, <laughs> you know, and I was attracted to whoever and don't don't do what I did or didn't do. Because it's so interesting, right? What she is totally clear on. The clearest, clearest love in this chapter is between Jane and Lizzie. And it's so simply written. Jane is like, Lizzie, there is nothing you can do. I fear Lydia's lost. Come home anyway. And this is what the text says. Shall I own that I long for your return? I'm not so selfish, however, as to press for it if inconvenient. So she, and then she pauses, like, I want you here, but I want you to have your good vacation. And then it says, I take up my pen again to do what I have just told you I would not, but circumstances are such that I cannot help earnestly begging you all to come home as soon as possible. Right? Like, you can't do anything, but I just need you here. And there's just this, like, comfort in their love for each other. Even the beginning of the chapter is so charming. Lizzie, you know, tells us, like, it's really weird that Jane hasn't written to me. It's been five days. I'm like, Jesus, you guys just talk all the time that five days. Like, that's impossible. Oh, it makes sense. Her letter got lost. Okay. And so there does seem to be, like, a simplicity of affection among women in this novel. I agree with you. And I think that there's also something really lovely about being able to ask for what you need. And for trusting that someone would only be asking if they truly needed it. Yeah. Yeah, it's total trust. Lauren, next week we're doing chapters 47 and 48. Lizzie gets back to Longbourn. A search is begun. I fear Lydia's lost. The plot keeps thickening. Cornstarch will be added between this week and next. Rubber cement So I'm really thinking about what it means to be a fallen woman, right? So how lost forever was Lydia, really? And were all of her sisters actually fallen by association? We wanted to talk to someone who really specializes in these questions. So let's reach out to Ellen Stockstill in the English department at Penn State Harrisburg, who has written on this very topic. Hi, Ellen. Hello. Thank you for joining us to talk about fallen women. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'm really curious just to start off. How is the notion of the fallen woman represented in Austin and literature of the era versus, you know, what it actually meant at the time historically? Yeah. So you're already getting at something that's key about the fallen woman, which is that she's a common character type. And is in lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of 19th century literature. And when we think of like the big writers of the 19th century, they, they pretty much all have one. Dickens has one. Eliot has more than one. Um, and on and on. So she's very, very prevalent. And some there are some ways in which her presence in fiction matches her presence in just kind of history and culture, which is, I think, what you're asking there. That, yeah, this is a historical figure and that there were women who maybe were 
expelled from their homes or their communities because of an unsanctioned sexual relationship of some sort. So some of the consequences that that are often described that result from being a fallen woman would be death. So oftentimes, like dying in childbirth, if, if a pregnancy arose from one of these relationships, maybe she dies in childbirth, maybe she drowns in the River Thames. That's a common kind of event that happens in some fiction, too often just kind of expelled from her home or her community, sometimes the country. This is where the British Empire plays a role, too. Like the end of George Eliot's novel, Adam Bede, there's a fallen woman character in that novel. And at the end, she's sent off to Australia. And that's kind of a convenient way sometimes to deal with people who uh, make us uncomfortable, (laughs) to just get them to leave. Or she might end up just kind of living in poverty. So it was that kind of trajectory she was on, unless there was some kind of intervention like a marriage. I'm imagining that the Thames was not actually littered with the bodies of (laughs) unpure women. And so Uh I'm curious about the distance between the cautionary tales in literature and what would actually happen. I I, I think you're right. (laughs) I don't think there's as many dead bodies as as the novels would make us think that there were. And some of that is because kind of like what we see in Austin, a common way of dealing with this situation was, well, let's head to the church. Let's get married. So a lot of times they would have been covered up in that way. In terms of your question about would it really kind of taint the rest of the family? It It could. And part of it, too, I know on your show, you've talked a lot about class and power. So some of what we see in fiction, too, is what we see as an ideal for the middle and upper classes, but that that's an ideal that often people aren't living up to uh, at all. And two, especially people in the working class, it's just it doesn't apply. But especially in those like middle upper classes where, like we see with the Bennett family, marriage and that whole marriage market is so crucial. That issue of of reputation is is huge. So in situations that are connected to such cautionary tales as this, I I always wonder who who has something to gain in this situation, who, who really has something at stake. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand what role the fallen woman tale played socially in Austin's time or, you know, before or after even. Yeah. So I think the role that it plays and then the who it benefits, those are both two really good questions. I mean, at its most base, the the people it benefits tend to be men. Because throughout the 19th century and beyond, the person whose reputation is damaged is the woman's. We even see that in Austin's other novel, um, Sense and Sensibility. There's Colonel Brandon as a character and He's described by another character, Mrs. Jennings, at one point as having a love child. And like, he can still get married. Just forget about the love child and he'll be fine. Which is to say, like, it's it's not a problem. He's got money. He's a man. He can do that. But if you're a woman, the situation is different. And so that sense of she needing to remain pure until marriage. Yeah, it benefits the husbands and it benefits that system of primogeniture, the way that property passes between men. So when you have a patriarchal society where it's really important to keep estates and land and resources and money together, 
and you need to be able to pass them on intact to your sons or your legitimate heirs. If you have women who are sleeping around on their husbands, that messes up that legal system in some pretty significant ways. And so the burden is really placed on women to keep that pure line. And so just going back to your question of like, who does that benefit? I think it benefits men. It benefits landowners. There's also in the 18th and 19th centuries in England too, a shared vocabulary in terms of patriarchal discourse and imperial discourse. So this is one of those places where power, gender, money, like all of that really ties together. And so a lot of the language you hear around female sexuality, female purity, separate spheres ideology. So this idea that like women should be in the home and the private sphere, men are out in the public sphere. All of that also maps onto this British imperial project that they're doing all over the globe at this time and expanding in colonies all over the place. So again, just like kind of having women remain these pure wives, that benefits the landowners at home, those men, and also abroad. It's, it's kind of a shared system of language and power. It's not to say that women were oppressed at home the same way that colonized subjects were in Kenya or India. It's, it's not to say that, but there is a, a shared kind of ideology of rule that, that covers both of those. Thinking about, you know, the great imperial project and notions of capital, I almost wonder if it seems like this sort of sexual behavior, the, the morality attached to it felt like a type of contagion of radicalism. The notion that, you know, one fallen woman could sort of infect the pool, that, right. you know, if someone was to sort of throw off the mantle of mores to, yeah. to to follow a track that was not what was good for England, the patriarchy, mm -hmm. the way that people were supposed to live, if somehow the whole experiment might crumble. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, what's so important about all of this in terms of the gender politics is that it is unfair at the root always. So it's going to be the women who are evaluated and judged and held to account for that behavior and not the men. So just as one example, this is much later in the 19th century, there are these things called contagious diseases acts. And this gets to what you're talking about, like that sense of like contagion and spreading. So there were kind of alarming rates of venereal disease in the military in Britain. So a lot of people had syphilis and other things. And so the government was like, well, what do we do about all these guys who were sick? It's a real problem. Well, instead of doing things to curb the men's behavior, they started forcing women to have vaginal exams, testing particularly women of like lower classes in these Port towns where sailors would say, come in and have a good time. So you have this like policing, very intentional policing of women's bodies to test them for venereal diseases. And men were not tested. They were not checked. They were just allowed to do whatever they did. And it was the women who had to undergo, sometimes by force, these kinds of medical exams and things. That's an extreme example, but that's the place that all of this got to. 
you know, not even 100 years later. It's so similar to how sex work is managed now, sure, frankly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's amazing in terms of the feminist movement, you had women at the time saying, you can't do this. This is not fair. You're just letting these guys off. And, you know, it takes two to tango. What are you doing? So, yes, this is something that was present in Austin's time. It's present 100 years later and then up to our own day as well, for sure. Well, Ellen, I could obviously talk to you for hours. <laughs> so thank happy you so to. much for joining us. Yes, I'm, I'm so happy to talk with you all. This has been really fun. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. And thank you so much to those of you who are already on our Patreon. And please do, if you can, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producers, Ariana Nettleman. We are distributed by Acast. Thanks as always to our Jane Level patrons, Viscount Elise Kenagratnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Snegas of Breakfast Carbston, Night Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, The Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks this week to Tara Menon, Aisha Ramachandran, and Ellen Stockstill for talking to us. Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Garamas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Somewhat ironically, you can still get married in Gretna Green. It's like a big tourist wedding place to go, but you now have to have a waiting period of at least 29 days. And it's so popular that you probably need to plan to get married in the town <laughs> over a year in advance. A little, a little irony in the romance novel industrial complex. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.